You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Globalization, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their area of expertise and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. The third installment of Asia Thinker series, Talkback, discussed state capacity, trust, and privacy in the post-COVID-19 era. The episode featured Singapore's Senior Minister Tarman Shadmugaratnam, John Micklethwaite of Bloomberg, and Ms. Rana Foruhar from the Financial Times, and was moderated by Associate Professor in Practice James Crabtree from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. To follow up with some of the topics raised during the episode, we caught up with Anubhav Gupta, Assistant Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Having joined the school in January this year, Professor Gupta is one of the school's newer faculty. He says it's been quite a start. His research focuses on the charitable or non-profit sector of the economy and the governance issues surrounding them. He was able to add an interesting perspective to the conversation of governments and their response to COVID-19. What do you think are the metrics with which states will use to judge their own success? And what particular areas do you see states perhaps playing a greater role after the pandemic? Right now, it seems that most of the government response is focused on in, in the area of public health. They're trying to increase their capacity, uh, manpower, and making sure that the uh, number of cases are kept in check. And, and most of the measurement, I think, around the world is, is happening on that narrow basis. How governments are you know, keeping the case low, low and you know, preventing deaths. At the end of the day, at least in democratic societies, their success or failure will be judged by the voters because like most policy interventions or most government interventions, there are always winners and losers. The conversation around government action right now, I think, is is too narrowly focused on the potential benefits, which are preventing the spread of the disease and preventing deaths. But I think as, as this crisis drags on, which seems pretty likely, and, and, and at some point, you know, people will have to sort of come to terms with the fact that this is not all cost-free and, and you know, there's a fine balance to strike. Keeping, keeping the economy closed gives you this one benefit that you, know, you prevent deaths, but at the same time, very vulnerable communities that depend on daily wages or do not really have much savings, they're bearing a disproportionate amount of, of, the, of the burden. That's a fine balance to strike. And, and we've seen that you know, across the world. Knee-jerk reaction around the world was to lock everything down, close the economy. And then over a period of time, they started opening things up, having realized that the economic cost was not sustainable. So that's ultimately up to the voters. I think in the, in the final metric, there will be more, more factors uh, than just preventing deaths or preventing caseloads. That mm-hmm. seems to be the focus right now. Okay, well, that brings us to this next question, and because you mentioned it briefly, that COVID is disproportionately impacting the economically and socially vulnerable. Do you think governments should incorporate wealth redistribution in its response to COVID to counteract the increasing inequality? I mean, what they should do uh, is, is an interesting question. I think they should. I'm sure other people can disagree with that. But I think more than that, what will inevitably happen is that they will end up um, redistributing wealth as a result of this crisis. Governments are borrowing money or, or drawing on their savings right now. As 
we start to recover from this crisis, they will have to replenish those funds or, or pay back the debt. It eventually boils down to tax policies of, um, of big governments. And as we know, most of the tax dollars in, in all the major economies of the world come from um, high-income people. I was looking at some, some of that data in the U.S., for example. Top 5% of income earners pay 60% of all tax dollars. I don't see that trend going away anytime soon. And, and as the word spreads about what the actual toll has been on vulnerable and low-income communities around the world, I think there will be increased democratic pressure on, on these governments to tax the rich even more and engage in wealth distribution even more. Whether that should happen or not happen, I think that's, that's individual preference, but I think that, that might happen. What is your basic overview of the way that the public and private sector work together and financing? Yeah, well, so a little bit of background on this. There's a reason why the nonprofit sectors tend to have different shares of the economy in different countries. In the U.S., it's a pretty big share. I think it's about 10% of the economy. If you look at developing countries like China and India, it tends to be a much smaller share. And this has to do with a lot of cross-country differences. Some are cultural, some are more about how the government is structured. So it really goes back to this move to hold the government more accountable or make the government more efficient. That started in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s. And the idea is that you know governments tend to have a monopoly on, on any area that they operate in. So if you could infuse some sort of competition, you could get, so to speak, uh, more bang out of your buck. You could make the government more efficient. That's been a trend that's been seen in the U.S. and generally in the Western world where governments have relied on outsourcing their activities through grants and contracts more and more to, to nonprofit organizations. And then, you know, nonprofit organizations compete for government resources and that competition arguably improves efficiency and, and promotes accountability. But, but that trend really hasn't been seen in recent times in the developing world as much. And that explains part of the disparity um, in, in the size of the nonprofit sector between, between countries. Not as much focus on, on keeping the government in check or keeping government accountable and, and efficient in developing countries like India and China as it is in the U.S. And so as you know, gov- government size expands and more and more people start paying taxes. I, I come from India and I know that about 3% of the population in India pays any kind of income tax. So the tax base in terms of people is really low. So there's really no incentive for people to think about what their tax dollar is doing because 97% of the people don't pay any taxes. As that tax base expands, I think there'll be, there'll be um, likely more awareness about these government efficiency issues and, and that should spur some kind of action or movement towards um, increased procurement from nonprofit organizations. Using India as an example, would you like to describe India's response to COVID-19? How do you think their government has done? And is there much of a nonprofit response there in India, or is it still almost entirely the, the government response? Well, that's a really good question. The, the main challenge in answering that question is that it's really hard to get real-time data as, as things are evolving um, right now. Researchers like myself are mostly dependent on news reports to make sense of what's going on, and that's not very helpful. Looking back at what was in place before this crisis hit, 
government's capacity to respond to these challenges is extremely limited in India. There are financial constraints. Most state governments don't maintain any kind of positive surplus that they can draw on. You know, Singapore is a really good example in terms of financial management in that area. The government has been really proactive in making sure they have reserves in place that they can draw on in times of emergency. Indian government at the central level and state governments haven't been as, as uh, good on that metric. And the charitable sector also really lags behind in, in, in comparison to its peer economies in Asia. There have been anecdotes about people's willingness to give and food banks and, and things like that cropping up. But I'm sure that that still leaves a lot of people unattended. And it's really about how prepared the government is and how big the size of your charitable sector is that determines how good the response is to a crisis of this size. And I don't think India has been, India has been doing so well in this area. Interesting that you pointed out that you, you don't have any really availability of real-time data and that you have to rely on news reports. I guess that's one thing about the developed economies like the United States. The government there is pretty good about putting out actual data sources that can be used by anyone. Right. I mean, this is part of the you know, overall picture of what it takes to grow the nonprofit sector in an economy and, and to keep it accountable. In the U.S., this has been an ongoing project for the last 20, 30 years. I remember when I started working in this area about six years ago, there were still a lot of data challenges that the U.S. was working out. They've made progress on this in recent times. Speaking of data on nonprofit organizations or these public charities, in, in other parts of the world, it's, it's just absolutely non-existent. If you want to know basic information like how much nonprofits are spending on, on their charitable activities as opposed to you know, accounting and administration and finance, that information is really hard to obtain for, um, for countries where this kind of reporting is, is not as uh, evolved. One audience member asked, they said in, in 2003 with SARS and then MERS and then H1N1, 2013 Ebola, all these deadly viruses were, are spreading and there were not lockdowns imposed and there was still freedom of travel. Some with symptoms still traveled anyway without the strict health protocol we see today. And then yeah. 2020, COVID's not as deadly, and yet travel was halted, borders closed, lockdowns imposed, and yet cases are still rising. So does restricting cross-border movements really work? Yes or no, and, and why or why not? Uh, that's a good question. One thing to note on that is that this virus is, um, is considerably different than um, SARS or H1N1. Two features about these viruses, one is... Uh, transmissibility and, and then deadliness. So yes, H1N1 and SARS, both of them were more deadly than the coronavirus now, but their transmissibility was not as high. And one unintended benefit of those viruses were that because they were more deadly, they tended to kill their host in more cases than this coronavirus. So it's not a good thing that the host dies, but one small good thing that comes from that is that if the host is not alive, then it, it prevents the spread of those uh, viruses. And, and then this new coronavirus, or the novel coronavirus, is sort of in that Goldilocks zone where it's just deadly enough that it's worth taking seriously, but at the same time, it's not deadly enough that it kills the host and therefore prevents transmission. It's the coming together of the two worst qualities that we've seen in the recent times. So that 
has induced a different response than the one we saw with the SARS and H1N1. And in terms of lockdown, right now, I think governments everywhere are just focused on making sure they're doing well on this one metric, which is keeping the caseloads low, preventing deaths. Those metrics have received tremendous amount of attention around the world, you know, in social media, traditional media, and the governments are finding themselves, you know, in a tough spot. It's really unpopular to uh, make any decision that makes them look bad on that metric. As we've seen with what's been happening in the U.S., President Trump's attitude and response has been uh, severely criticized for not being able to prevent rising cases and deaths. But, you know, I think in the end, history will judge whether that was the right decision or not, because, you know, like I said, right now, people are just focusing on the benefits and not so much on the costs. Eventually, when, you know, all the, all the costs are tallied and measured up against the benefits, then we'll see whether governments... I was watching um, U.S. Senator uh, Marco Rubio, and he used a nice analogy for this. He's a senator from Florida, and Florida gets hit by a lot of hurricanes and these natural disasters. So he compared COVID to a natural disaster like that. That's uh, It's a pretty bad hurricane and fast winds and massive rains, and everyone's just hunkered down. They're hiding in their homes, and we have no idea about uh, what's really happening out there. That, we haven't really stepped out and um, tried to find out or try to calculate the total amount of damage. And that's sort of the period we're living in right now. We're all locked up in our houses and we know there's a lot of damage happening outside in terms of, you know, reduced social trust, in terms of, um, you know, geopolitical changes, in terms of what's happening to vulnerable communities that we don't really see on TV or see on social media. And once there's a vaccine or once we get out of this crisis, I think that we'll really be able to, you know, take account of uh, what really happened out there. What do you think the future of globalization and multilateralism is at this point? Are we heading towards deglobalization, especially after COVID-19 and the disruption of the international value chain? And do you think countries are headed towards protectionism? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know a lot about the topic, but I would... But it seems to me that major economies around the world will be forced to re-examine their stance on globalization. And I, I think it could be a healthy correction in, in the trend we've seen over the last 20, 30 decades. I mean, before COVID, the world was so connected that it was really hard to imagine for anyone who'd been alive, you know, since before 1960s, 70s, 80s. The boundaries and the borders were becoming so thin and almost irrelevant. And, and that rapid change, I think, wasn't care- carefully thought about. And, and I'm sure it was causing some distress and causing some unintended harm to, to economies around the world. And we saw in the case of U.S., that sort of devolution of, of borders and not really respecting the borders was became a big election issue in, in, in 2016. And, and with the um, election of Donald Trump, the U.S. started imposing all these tariffs and started creating these new barriers on immigration and, and, and I'm sure those kinds of conversations were, were taking place in other countries around the world as well. And, and now, because of this COVID, a lot of those issues, I think, would come to the surface. And, and the governments and around the world will be forced to uh, rethink their stance on, on globalization and how they uh, view their borders, who they deal with, who they allow in their country. These kinds of crises tend to crop up these issues that are alive under the surface, but are really difficult to talk about. But these crises give voice to, to those kinds of issues. 
Okay, well, this is a pretty big question that's on everybody's mind. Will developing a good vaccine successfully change the lockdown policy? I'm sure it will. But what's your opinion on vaccines and the fact that everyone's waiting on them right now? Yeah, it's an interesting issue. What surprises me about this is that everyone sort of takes human progress and medical advances for granted. It's been fascinating talking to people about this, and everyone you know, has some version of the opinion that, oh, I hope the vaccine is available before December or January. People have sort of set these arbitrary deadlines in their minds. I guess some of this has, has to do with how the media has been portraying the um, advancement of these uh, clinical trials. But it's still, you know, it's all up in the air. It's, we still have no vaccine for um, SARS or H1N1. Influenza has, um, you know, no vaccine or no effective vaccine. People get the shot, but it only has a certain effect, rate of effectiveness. There's a lot of money behind it. There's a lot of need for a good vaccine, effective vaccine. But I'm not sure um, when it will be found in um, what kind of effectiveness it will have and how it will be delivered to, you know, 7 billion people around the world. These are just the kinds of challenges that I don't think humanity has ever faced before. These lockdowns and this restrictive movement policies that governments have adopted around the world, these are not going to magically go away as soon as, you know, you hear on CNN that there is a new vaccine. Uh, it's going to be a long process from the development of the vaccine to a complete reopening of, of borders and movement around the world. Well, let me spin it towards your area of uh, expertise about the nonprofits, referring to Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Are they the largest nonprofit in the world? If not, they're one of the largest, right? And they're one of the largest foundations. Yes, they've made this vaccine uh, a priority, and they were in they were working with public health and and vaccines and treatments already. What kind of uh, positive effect have have they been able to have? I think most of the work done by that foundation has been in, in, in develop, developing parts of the world. They've done a lot of work in Africa and India. And, and Bill Gates has really drawn upon his business acumen to maximize the uh, rate of return, quote-unquote, on his uh, foundational investments. And they've really attacked some of the most basic things that can improve human condition, like access to clean drinking water and access to um, basic medical services like the malaria pills, which are really low-cost treatments right now, but are still not available to millions and millions of people around the world. And they've really tried to focus on those things. And, and by not spending all that much money, they've managed to uh, improve the condition of, um, of a lot of people. In terms of investing in the development of vaccines, I, I, I read that they are actively involved in that. But this is not really something that, that nonprofits alone can, can operate in. Nonprofits need to take a lead in, in these health measures, for example, like providing access to malaria pills or access to clean drinking water because there's not much money to be made in these areas for regular for-profit companies or corporations. But vaccine development right now is, is something that, that has no shortage of private capital because this makes really good business sense. If you're you know, Pfizer or some big pharma company that comes up with a vaccine, you stand to make billions and billions of dollars from that discovery. There's a reason nonprofits are not as involved in manufacturing iPhones because that's something that for-profits can do with and make money off of. So this vaccine development is something that companies can make money off of very easily. So it, it's not entirely dependent on the nonprofit sector. 
Do you think there's anything that the um, for-profit sector can learn from the nonprofit sector when it comes to perhaps distributing this vaccine if and when it's uh, created? Yeah, definitely. I think that they can learn a lot. In the end, I think it will boil down to uh, supply chain issues, how to reach to parts of the world where for-profit corporations or big companies don't have any reach. With increased availability of contracting in this space, I think the lines have blurred quite a bit, even if you know a big drug company or some other for-profit wants to access a region that doesn't really have access to it, can contract with other nonprofits that have been working in the area. So I'm sure if a vaccine is discovered and there's a plan to give that to 7 billion people on this earth, I'm fairly certain that even for-profit companies will have to contract and, and rely on the uh, expertise of uh, nonprofits working in, these, in this area because they know their clientele and they know the regions. And they often operate in areas that are you know, sort of dark spaces for these for-profit companies because there's not much of a profit to be made. Another topic of conversation was about collective responsibility. The question here was, do, you, do the high income or rich pitch in more through greater understanding with a view to build society together? And I, I suppose the question is, should they pitch in more? Like you've already said, that they kind of have to in fact that they're the only ones that have the assets and resources to be able to. Is that right? Right, yeah. Uh, it's inevitable that the, the world will have to rely on the rich to, to pitch in more and, and help with the recovery effort because even though we're, we haven't really taken account of how much damage has happened around the world, whenever we do take account of that, I think we'll realize that, that the road to recovery is going to be too costly to, and, and prohibitively costly for governments alone. What remains to be seen is whether the rich will step up uh, through voluntary contributions through nonprofits or foundations, or you know, if they don't do that, then um, I'm sure there will be increasing pressure on, on, on the governments to get them involved through taxation and, and other means. In regards to civic society and activism, how do you empower and educate young policymakers to put on an activist hat to one, create policies with the people at the heart of the policies, and two, how might they inspire a broader sense of moral purpose amongst the populace? Is there a way to educate and empower young policymakers in that way? Better data, better resources play a huge role in this. People often don't get involved in, in community service and, and in politics and in government because you know, they don't really understand how things operate. They feel that it is an elite club that belongs only to, to the wealthy or, or the socially connected people. I think a lot of it has to do with the breaking down that, that barrier that people have in their minds and making sure that governments are inclusive. It always helps to advertise or to popularize the achievements, to hold regular meetings and, and get people's feedback through all kinds of sources these days. Social media and online communication has uh, made things much easier in that regard. If um, people see more and more that their voices are being heard and it's easier for them to participate and they don't really have to skip a work day and go to a special meeting, then, um, then young people will feel more um, included and, and feel um, more responsible uh, of their own destiny. Thank you, Professor, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to lkyspp.edu.sg forward slash GIA.
or join our Facebook group at Global Is Asian. That's Global I-S-A-S-I-A-N. 